This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased because today we get to welcome back an author who I was lucky enough to interview about his previous book, and he's now back to tell us about his newest book titled State of Silence, The Espionage Act and the Rise of America's Secrecy Regime, uh, published in 2023 from Basic Books. This book does pretty much what it says, explains the Espionage Act, which is weird, to be honest. Um, This is a law that I knew some about, but learned a lot more about from this book, and think that it is a fascinating history, not just about this law, but about a whole big, broader question about secrecy in American politics, and much more. So thank you so much for coming back, Dr. Sam Leibovic. Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into all things espionage, would you mind introducing yourself to listeners who may not have heard you last time you were here and explain why you decided that this would be your book project? Sure. So I teach history at George Mason University um, and I've written sort of I've written a couple of books exploring different aspects of the relationship between American press freedom, civil liberties, foreign relations uh, and, you know, the American public sphere and the project sort of broadly that unites all of my work is an interest in thinking about how information and ideas circulate and sometimes don't circulate in the American public sphere and what that can tell us about American democracy. Uh, And so one of the big themes that came out of my first book, uh, Free Speech and Unfree News, which was published by Harvard in 2016, uh, which was an exploration of how the right to free free speech uh, doesn't really produce a democratic press in the 20th century because there are unanticipated problems, one of which was the rise of kind of corporate media consolidation, and the First Amendment isn't very helpful there. And the other problem the First Amendment turns out not to be very helpful with is the rise of state secrecy. And so I'd explored that problem a little through the history of the press and press freedom, um, and thought I was kind of done with that, that had touched on parts of the history of the Espionage Act. Uh, But then after that book came out, I was invited to join uh, a group uh, working on the history of national security whistleblowing that uh, Hannah Gurman and Kate and Mystery had put together. And, you know, in a series of workshops and then in an edited volume they brought out called Whistleblowing Nation, I wrote a sort of early history of the Espionage Act and how it sort of evolved in the years between World War One and World War Two, which was a history I knew very little about and not much had been written about. And that made me realize that there was a broader history of the Espionage Act to be told. Um, And then a little bit of sort of good fortune came my way, which was that an editor at Basic Books actually got in touch and said they were interested in commissioning 
uh, a narrative history of the Espionage Act over its entire history. And that fit pretty well with the themes I was interested in. And I had done some work already on the subject. And uh, then, to be honest, this also, that email came in about March of 2020. Um, and so other plans I might have had about doing kind of more archival, new research based in the archives, far-flung, really were put on hold uh, during the early pandemic. And this was a project that made a lot of sense to kind of dig in and work further on material I already had at hand. Hmm. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense how that all comes together, both practically and in terms of your existing research. So I'd like to start sort of chronologically, um, right at the kind of pre-life, I suppose, of the Espionage Act, um, because something I think we're probably much more aware of in um, literature, especially around American history, is uh, that narratives of kind of it all being about democracy and happy days is not necessarily the full story, and that there's a bunch of imperial history um, that is relevant in the United States if we go back to the late 19th and early 20th century. So can you tell us about, kind of take us back to this time period and help us understand what sort of imperial things were actually happening that people were scared of happening that help us understand sort of the environment in which the Espionage Act begins to be discussed? Sure. So, you know, the funny thing about the Espionage Act is that it's passed in 1917. uh, And it's also an update in some of the clauses I care most about, which are about keeping information secret from foreign spies. Those clauses in the 1917 Act are basically updated versions of a 1911 Act, the Defense Secrets Act. And the Defense Secrets Act in 1911 is the first time in the U- in US history there's a peacetime spying law. And so the question that really struck me as I began working on the book uh, is why, you know, the US has been around since the late uh, 18th century. It's It's gone over a century without a peacetime spying law. And then in the early 20th century, you get not one, but two efforts to pass these laws. And they're passed you know, really with a sense of urgency that this is a major problem that we need to have peacetime spying laws. Uh, The 1911 law is passed with basically no congressional debate whatsoever. And, you know, I was trying to work out why this happened, why the newfound need for spying laws, because obviously spying isn't a new thing. There have been spies throughout human history. Um, And the answer I hit upon was really that it's tied up with a kind of new era of imperial conflict. Um, not just between the great powers and kind of concerns that in a kind of age of geopolitical confrontation and new technologies like the telegraph and the steamship and the camera, which will allow information to circulate, all of which kind of raises the value of information um, and therefore leads to both new efforts to find out what other nations are doing and planning, but also to protect one's own information. Uh, But also tied to a series of anxieties really about maintaining the hierarchies of empire. And so in the U.S. case, um, you know, the main sort of advocate for a new regime of secrecy is a, is a senator, sorry, a congressman from Alabama. Uh, his name is uh, Richmond Hobson. He's the kind of character I knew very little about, but he's really giving speeches all throughout the early part of uh, the lead up to the 1911 law, talking about the fact that there's a war coming with Japan imminently in the Pacific and that Hawaii and the Philippines and the West Coast of the United States are overrun with Japanese spies. And, you know, this is a kind of moral panic and anxiety about the racial other and anxiety about maintaining newly won imperial holdings in the Pacific. Uh, 
And it looks very similar to things that are happening in the other empires. I mean, this is the era, obviously, of the Dreyfus Affair in France and in the United Kingdom. There's a whole series of sort of new spy fiction published, beating up a kind of panic about, well, first French spies, but then after the geopolitics shift, German spies. And this, so these sort of anxieties will run through up until the First World War, um, and they intermingle geopolitical sort of inter-imperial conflict, but also the fears of decolonization uh, and sort of nascent decolonization. There's an example I like very much that in uh, in the early years of World War One, uh, the British and the American security services kind of joined together to arrest and charge a bunch of uh, Indian anti-colonial activists on the west coast of the United States who are actually trying to meet with the German Foreign Service to run guns back to India to kind of lead uh, a national independence uprising. So you see here some real kind of politics happening, but that then gets layered on top of it, a kind of moral panic and a fear. In the US, it's called the Hindu conspiracy trial, although you know most of the participants are actually Sikh, uh, not Hindu. And that intermingling of geopolitical fears, racial anxieties, and an effort to secure what really is hard to keep secure, right? I mean, a few small nations dominating uh, the globe's territory, I think, leads to a moral panic, which then creates these new these new laws. So you mentioned that there are particular clauses in the law that you are paying most attention to. Before we get into kind of what happens when this starts to, you know, when this is a law and starts to actually get put into practice, can you walk us through sort of what you're focusing on and why these bits? Sure. So the Espionage Act of 1917 is really a kind of omnibus national defense or national security bill, and it has a whole host of different clauses. Um, you know, the one that's most important during World War One, and the one that's maybe most important to the history of the First Amendment and the one that's most familiar to American historians are clauses that are intended to prevent interfering with the draft uh, and make it illegal to sort of criticize the war if that will uh, interfere with the draft. But the clauses that are at the center of my story um, and that are at the history of center of the Espionage Act uh, after World War Two and into the present are two sections relating to the handling of information. And these are the sections that have been transferred in from that 1911 Defense Secrets Act. And one of them covers what we might think of as traditional spying. Uh, it makes it illegal to give information to a foreign government. Uh, that today is section 794 of the Espionage Act. But the second is actually a much broader and more confusing set of clauses, section 793, which are really all information handling regulations. And they, they all take the same form. They basically make it illegal to do things with information relating to the national defense is the key phrase, such as retaining it without authorization, transferring it or communicating it without authorization. And they're really information handling provisions that try to establish and regulate state secrecy. Got it. That's good to know sort of where we're pinpointing um, in the discussion here. And interesting to think of this, given all those anxieties coming in as a sort of omnibus bill in some ways that I found that a little bit counterintuitive. If you're so worried about this, you know, why doesn't it have its own thing? <laughs> but I guess there were kind of a lot of different things, as you said, all being sort of smushed together. Um, what then happened with it? Why do you pinpoint, for example, the first 18 months after World War I as being an important turning point for this act? Yeah, so during World War I, as a lot of people who study American history or the history of civil liberties know, the Espionage Act provides a kind of vehicle for widespread government censorship. Uh, 
So, you know, 2,000 people are arrested, uh, are charged, 1,000 go to jail for criticizing the American war effort, primarily socialists, people on the left. Um, and they're sent to jail for saying pretty innocuous things about the war, sort of saying this is a rich man's war and we don't think we should be fighting it. Um, you know, the most famous person to go to jail is probably Eugene Debs, the perennial socialist presidential candidate. And he's sentenced to jail for really a socialist stump speech in which he says, look at all my comrades who've gone to jail. How ridiculous is the US? It says it's fighting for liberal democracy, but you can't even say what you want in this country. Um, and this is, I think, an important moment in the history of American democracy, because under the pressure of war, there's been a kind of rise of uh, national security censorship and an idea here that the government should be able to censor information that is seen, uh, sorry, speech that is seen to be harmful to the public good. And the panic uh, that sort of rises during World War I doesn't end uh, with the armistice in 1918. Uh, in 1919, there are a series of bombings uh, organized primarily by anarchist movements. You know, there's, this is an era after World War I fame, you know, where there's the revolution in the Soviet Union, but there's revolution in Mexico, there's revolution in Ireland, there's revolution in Germany, uh, there's imperial unrest and protest in many places, there are racial pogroms in the United States. And so those panics continue. And in that context, uh, it's a real question whether the kind of patriotic culture of censorship, the kind of our nation first, we need to censor the radicals, we need to censor the critics, uh, whether that will continue and become a kind of more permanent regime. And in sort of early 1919, it looks like it's going to become permanent in peacetime. You know, the Supreme Court has hears for the first time a bunch of appeals from those World War I prosecutions, including the jailing of Debs. And it unanimously rules that that kind of censorship is compatible with the First Amendment, it says it's okay to send people to jail for criticizing the war. Famously, Oliver Wendell Holmes says, you know, you can't falsely shout fire in a crowded theater. You don't have the right to say that sort of thing. And he says that criticizing the war when the nation's at war is just like falsely shouting fire and therefore you don't have the right to do it. And um, the Attorney General, uh, Palmer, really positions himself also as a kind of national security demagogue, a kind of national security populist. You know, Wilson right, will have his stroke and be kind of sidelined. And Palmer is seen as the favorite for the 1920 presidential election, and he's running on a militant sort of law and order program about uh, expelling radical immigrants, about passing permanent censorship, peacetime censorship laws, and making permanent what had begun uh, during the war. Uh, but then in the sort of summer of 1919, a small group of civil liberties activists from the left of American politics really begin to push back on both of these developments. They begin to criticize and investigate Palmer and Palmer's raids, which is, you know, when J. Edgar Hoover really gets his start. He's sort of picked up by Palmer to help orchestrate the, the arrest and mass deportation of immigrants who were suspected of being radicals. Um, and they conduct investigations and find that there was malpractice in those raids and they were not really legitimate exercises of national security, but were a type of abuse. And that really puts a dent in Palmer's uh, presidential hopes, including... Uh, you know, he famously predicts that there will be a revolution in May on May Day in the United States. And this makes him look like a sort of paranoid laughingstock. So his campaign to make permanent this regime falls apart because of political pushback. And interestingly, that same civil liberties activists, they put pressure on Oliver Wendell Holmes, who had written these unanimous decisions saying you don't have the right to criticize 
uh, the war effort. And they sort of provide him with reading materials and they make cases to him based on sort of John Stuart Mill and why you should have the right to criticize uh, the government. And in, in the fall of 1919, in the Abrams decision, which is another Espionage Act case concerning the Sedition Act amendments to the Espionage Act, uh, the majority of the judges just apply the decisions from the spring and say you don't have the right to kind of call for a general strike during war. But Oliver Wendell Holmes dissents from his own president only six months earlier and says, actually, you do have the right to say these sorts of things. And it's important to a democracy that we have a free marketplace of ideas. And that dissent in the fall of 1919 is really the birth of the modern First Amendment. Uh, and it will sort of expand thanks to activism by a whole host of civil liberties groups and press groups over the 20th century to produce our modern, very robust right to free speech. So I think that period after World War One, there's a real sort of potential turning point where the patriotic kind of culture of censorship and national security that had begun during the war could have continued. Uh, what in instead happens is pushback by civil liberties groups helps kind of create uh, a new space for free expression in American politics, really begins to blunt one part of the Espionage Act's provisions, those censorship provisions. But it leaves open a question of whether or not a national security bureaucracy can rely on the other sections, those sections concerning information security, and begin to keep information secret uh, in the first place. And that, you know, that also really begins in the fall of 1919 with the appointment of a young J. Edgar Hoover uh, to head up the radical division of the uh, Justice Department from where he'll ultimately uh, rise to become the director of the FBI. Mm. No, thank you for taking us through those initial changes. I think um, turning points are always interesting, but especially one kind of right at the beginning of the act itself and with such consequences for not just the Espionage Act, but as you said, the kind of First Amendment aspects of it more broadly. If we skip ahead a bit in time, um, I wonder if I can ask you to tell us a little bit about Harry Truman and the changes that he makes and particularly comparing sort of what, he and his government do around creating a secrecy system as compared to the one that is existing in this time we've just been talking about, 1917, 18, 19. Um, what are some of the kind of key differences between them? To what extent would the US government consider Truman's to have been a success as opposed to maybe Wilson's failure? Sure. So, you know, as we talked about, the Espionage Act, as it's proposed in 1917, is an omnibus bill. It has a whole host of clauses included within it. And one of them is a section that's going to give the president the authority to censor the press if the press publishes secret information. And this is incredibly controversial as the bill is debated in Congress in 1917 and is ultimately cut from the bill. Um, and along with it, a few other clauses are cut as well, because basically Congress doesn't want to give the president unilateral authority to to decide that something should be secret and to censor the press if they publish it. They think that's sort of not compatible with American democracy. The problem, though, is that in cutting those sections out of the bill, what Congress has done is really made the Espionage Act confusing. They've left a big hole in the middle of the law. And the reason for that is that what's left are a series of prohibitions in Section 793 and 794 that say you can't do things with information relating to the national defense uh, unless you have authorization. But the Espionage Act neither defines what information relating to the national defense is, nor defines a process by which one might be authorized to access it or retain it or so forth. 
And the reason it doesn't define either of those things is that those powers had originally been vested in the president. The idea was supposed to be that the president could decide whether something is information relating to the national defense, or the president could decide who will have access and the, the sort of mechanisms by which individual people will be authorized to access information. And leaving those definitional pieces out of the law just creates a kind of legal problem that's going to haunt the Espionage Act for most of its life, but particularly for its first three decades, when you see a series of kind of bureaucratic and legal and judicial improvisations trying to make sense of what does information relating to national defense mean and how is one authorized to receive it? And the reason you need to resolve that is if those things are too vague, well, then maybe the law is unconstitutional or maybe it's not able to be applied in any particular sense. And the book covers this kind of long period of improvisation and there's kind of some interesting and strange cases that emerge in those years. But the, the result is that by World War II, sort of bureaucrats who want to keep information secret within the government realize that they need a kind of fix. They need some clear mechanism that will establish what is information related to national defense and a process to make very clear how the president can sort of decide what that is and isn't. And that will lead ultimately to the passage under Harry Truman of Executive Order 10290 in 1951, which establishes the modern classification system. It's being tinkered with it a few times after 1951, but the basic architecture of the system is still in place today. And that's the system where there are a series of kind of categories of classified information, top secret, secret, confidential, uh, and that those are determined by individual bureaucrats deciding uh, what stamp any particular document should receive based on its potential risks to national security. And then there are a sequence of sort of executive orders to establish loyalty procedures and access procedures for how people get particular security clearances, allowing them to access different levels of information. And that's kind of the heart of the modern secrecy regime. And it's, it's an executive order passed in 1951. From my point of view, what's interesting is that that's really a plug-in to the Espionage Act. It's really a kind of important patch that comes in to say, well, information relating to the national defense is covered by the Espionage Act. We don't know necessarily what information relating to the national defense is, but we definitely know that anything that is stamped classified under this classification order is information relating to the national defense. Um, and I think there are some important sort of ironies here. But the first is that there was some concern that information relating to national defense was sort of too broad a category. But actually, these classification orders allow people to stamp something as secret if it will relate to the national security, which at the time was understood to be even broader than national defense. So it's given sort of the executive branch huge authorities to stamp a lot of information as secret, and then use that sort of the criminal prohibitions of the Espionage Act to give teeth to this bureaucratic sort of self-invention in the executive branch. And the second irony is that this is exactly the sort of thing that Woodrow Wilson's Congress had been unwilling to grant the president uh, and had removed from the Espionage Act. And then, you know, almost four decades later, Harry Truman takes exactly those powers by executive order uh, and there is very little protest. And we've lived with that system ever since, and we treat it as perfectly natural that a president should have such vast powers to declare information secret and prevent it from circulating to the public. Um, and that executive order, you know, as I said, has been tinkered with since. A lot of different presidents have put forward their own kind of adjustments to some of the sort of rules, but the basic architecture remains. And so between the sort of stitched together criminal prohibitions of the Espionage Act 
and the bureaucratic innovation of the executive order uh, about classification, you then get a quite robust secrecy regime, uh, one that I think is gives more power to the president than even Woodrow Wilson's Congress was willing uh, to imagine. Hmm. No, that, that second irony in particular speaks so directly to that point. Can I ask you to tell us about some of that tinkering um, that's happened since Truman's government, uh, particularly around the second half of the 1970s, if you want to kind of pull out some of the most important or significant bits, things that were changed around then? Sure. So, you know, from my point of view as a historian, I, you're sort of willing to forgive uh, the Truman administration for creating a uh, a really far too deferential secrecy regime, too deferential to the presidency, one that really allows too much information to be kept secret. Because by the, you know, the the US government hasn't had a kind of secrecy regime really before this time. There's been some secrecy systems established in the, in the armed forces. But this idea of a kind of government-wide massive bureaucratic process is new. You know, it's passed during the anxieties of the Red Scare and when America's rising to becoming a genuine sort of global superpower for the first time. And so, you know, the system turns out by the early 1950s to produce massive overclassification. Uh, you know, repeated studies by Defense Department groups find that, you know, somewhere between 75 and 90% of information that's classified doesn't need to be classified. There are all sorts of bureaucratic incentives to put a secret stamp on something. Um, and by the early 1970s, it's become very clear that that's not just a kind of bureaucratic problem, that it produces real deformations in American foreign policy and produces real abuse. And so, you know, the Vietnam War is an obvious sort of form of that abuse, you know, that so much of that policy is formed in secret and then kind of spun publicly in different ways. And so the Pentagon Papers release, you know, famously reveals that kind of history of deceit. Uh, but then there's also the, all the abuse of the CIA and the FBI, you know, uh, mind control programs and CIA coups overseas and monitoring of anti-war movements and the FBI's COINTELPRO programs, which intimidate and harass, uh, you know, a whole host of illegal acts to try to disrupt groups that they think are contrary to the American national security interests and so forth. And so in the 1970s, there's a kind of moment where you, you would have expected there would have been major reform of the system. Uh, you know, the church committee looking into abuses in the intelligence community sort of famously says that, like, abuse thrives in secrecy. Uh, and the, so the surprising thing to me is how lackluster the secrecy reforms are of the 1970s. You know, there are a couple that people, you know, pay a lot of attention to. The one is the Freedom of Information Act, right, which is actually first passed in 1966 and then updated in 1974. And, you know, that seems like a breakthrough for kind of transparency. But actually, from my point of view, uh, the, the interesting thing is that America for the first time felt like it needed a freedom of information law. Uh, that's a, itself a reaction to how much new secrecy there is. Uh, but also the, the act is incredibly weak when it comes to national security secrecy. There's an exemption that means that you can't FOIA uh, national security information that the government can just sort of say, well, if it falls under classification, it's not covered by FOIA. So it's a kind of carve out for this secrecy regime. And then more broadly, it, the whole logic of FOIA actually presumes the government will keep a lot of secrets and then gives individual citizens the right to kind of pry out individual pieces of information. So, you know, that's one kind of transparency reform that's very weak. The other is the intelligence oversight committees established in Congress uh, in the wake of the year of intelligence in 1975. 
Uh, but again, those don't really take on the secrecy regime. They just incorporate part of the legislature within the secrecy state, right? Allow particular members of Congress to learn the secrets that otherwise were circulating in the executive branch. So you get some reform, but from my point of view in this book, what's amazing is how tepid it is. It doesn't take on the classification system more broadly. It doesn't try to revive the Espionage Act. And then on the other side, you actually get a sequence of people who, from the the conservative wing of the Republican Party uh, in the 1970s, who see these disclosures and the kind of legitimacy crisis of the security state, and they say that the, the, the lesson to be learned here is not that there is too little transparency, but actually there's been too much, right? That we need to make sure that we protect the kind of prerogatives of a strong executive branch to maintain America's national security. And there's a tight cluster of young Republicans in the Ford White House, right? I mean, this is this is a young Dick Cheney, who's chief of staff, a Donald Rumsfeld, who was chief of staff and secretary of defense, Brent Scowcroft, uh, Antonin Scalia is in the School of Law, sorry, is in the, uh, the Antonin Scalia School of Law is where is at George Mason, where I teach. It's Antonin Scalia is in the Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, George uh, W. Bush is, uh, sorry, George H.W. Bush is the, uh, will become CIA director in these years. And they're all committed, particularly Cheney, uh, to ensuring that the president maintains its ability to act in secret. And so you then see, you know, alongside weak reforms for transparency, you see proposals to strengthen the Espionage Act, to make it a stronger law, which those don't succeed. But a series of other laws are passed. So there's an Intelligence Identities Protection Act, which gives uh, new powers to keep the identity of CIA agents uh, covert. There are uh, CIA reform bills to make their CIA more exempt from FOIA. Uh, There's the establishment of pre-publication review boards within the CIA, which allow uh, the CIA to basically screen and censor any... uh, speech by former officers about information about infor- uh, which include information relating to their work. Uh, and so you get a whole bunch of patches that come out that sort of layer on top of the secrecy regime that had existed since the Truman years. Uh, and so by the 1980s and 1990s, uh, actually the ability of the, the president to keep information secret is stronger than ever before. Uh, it actually survives the scandals of the 1970s and survives Iran-Contra and survives the end of the Cold War very successfully. So it's on that last point um, I'd like to ask you about, because I agree it is surprising that there isn't um, reform in the 70s, but especially with the end of the Cold War. That seems like kind of, in some ways, such an obvious moment for reform. So why wasn't it reformed, I mean, at various points, but especially then? Yeah, so the general story here, I think, is just there's a lack of political will. Um you know, the, the the 1970s moment I find the most surprising, it seems like the most obvious moment, you know, in the wake of Watergate and the scandals of Vietnam and the revelations. And there, you know, the Democrats would have been the right, the, the party most likely to lead a reform effort. Uh, but there's not a great appetite for it. I mean, the, the lesson I think they take from the 1972 election when McGovern loses so badly to Nixon is that it's not a viable strategy to flirt with the anti-war movement. And a lot of the Democrats will kind of skirt to the center uh, to try to show national security sort of legitimate uh, legitimacy. Um, you know, it also would have involved taking on uh, some of the great sort of salad days of the, de- the post-war Democratic Party, right? The, uh, a lot of the abuse of secrecy happens under Kennedy and LBJ. Um, so there's no great appetite for it there. 
I think the other problem is that secrecy is really powerful at producing its own legitimacy. Um, you know, it's a very powerful claim in American politics to say, well, we have access to secret information that shows that there will be real harms to national security. You know, that we, there are wolves at the door and we can't risk tinkering with things uh, or there will be real harms. And, you know, I think that's powerful because America, you know, is can look around the world in the 1970s and the 1980s and see conflict in many places and see that it itself is relatively spared and is relatively prosperous. And there's anxiety that comes out of that position in the hierarchy. I think it understates how much damage a kind of adventurous foreign policy does both globally, uh, also in terms of American economic spending and, you know, how much money there is available for kind of, you know, poverty programs, for instance, it's instead going to bloated military industrial complex spending contracts. Uh, and it also understates the risks of blowback, which will become more apparent um, uh, in 9-11. Uh, but there's just not really any effective political coalition that emerges that is willing to take on the, the sort of pieties of the need for secrecy. Uh, you know, the closest that America has is in the 1990s, Daniel Patrick Moynihan heads a commission into government secrecy. And, you know, he reports, which most people have reported, that the classification system produces too much classification and it's in need of major reform. And he proposes legislation to do that kind of reform that gets reported, you know, gets bipartisan support in committee, but then goes absolutely nowhere. And I think the reason for that is that, you know, in the 1990s is not an opportune moment for reform of classification, even though you might think it should be, given that the Cold War has ended. Because what would motivate people uh, to, to do classification reform, to take on the risks of making more information transparent, and to undermine claims by security hawks that you need to keep information secret to keep yourself safe, is a real visible uh, example of the harms that secrecy produces. Uh, and that had happened in the 1970s, but there'd been no reform. It had happened in the 1980s, but there'd been no reform. Uh, in the 1990s, there's no big, great scandal that can be used. Uh, and Moynihan's not very effective as a kind of champion against the security state, because actually in the 1970s and early 1980s, he'd been an advocate for a kind of more robust and independent and secretive CIA. And he has a change of heart because of Reagan's foreign policy in the 1980s, but he doesn't have close connections to the kind of parts of American political culture uh, anti-war uh, anti kind of more left-wing groups that might have made for a useful uh, alliance. And so what he produces is really a pretty sort of sterile and intellectual exercise that points out the problems with classification and explains it would be good to reform it, but there's no moral urgency behind that. And Moynihan himself is more of a public intellectual than a legislator. Uh, you know, he's really much more effective at bringing attention to an issue throughout his career than he is at mobilizing a coalition to get change done. And so, you know, this effort in the 1990s just withers on the vine. Um, and, uh, you know, the secrecy laws live on through what looks now, in hindsight, like a period of optimism and, and peace and opportunity, and are still fully there uh, when the 9-11 attacks happen. Mm. So, I'd like to turn to that uh, moment, if you will. Uh, it, the Espionage Act enters its ninth decade. And as you've just described, it, it's still around. It's not reformed in the 90s. And you even say in the book that at this point, after 9-11, the Espionage Act is reborn. What did that look like in this post-9-11 context? Yeah, so 
you know, in as late as 2000, conservatives in Congress are calling for a stronger espionage law because they think that the Espionage Act has proven inadequate to really policing secrets and preventing leaks. And, you know, there's only been one successful leak prosecution in American history up until this point. It's a 1987 case come in the Reagan years of a kind of unsympathetic right-wing character, uh, Samuel uh, Morrison, who provides uh, satellite photographs that he has access to in his day job in intelligence, and he provides them to Jane's Defense Weekly. Uh, he's sort of trying to line up a job, I think, working for Jane's, he's, and he's getting paid as a you know to to kind of provide this information. Uh, and you know, he says that he's trying to blow the whistle in the interests of more defense spending, but it's a really implausible claim. And uh, the Justice Department gets the first successful leak prosecution under the Espionage Act in history and establishes a precedent that the law can be used to prosecute leakers. But that hadn't happened before, and it doesn't happen again uh, until the early war on terror. And so as late as 2000, conservatives pass a new law that's more like an official secrets act that will be even tougher on leakers, and Clinton has to veto it. And in the early 2000s, before 9-11, the Republicans basically write to the George uh, W. Bush administration and say, we would like you to explore uh, the drafting of a new espionage law. We want a new sort of secrets law. And a few years later, uh, Attorney General Ashcroft writes back and says, we hear that you want a tougher secrecy law. We've looked into things. We actually have realized that the Espionage Act is good to go. We don't need a new law. We just need to more vigorously enforce the laws as they are on the books. And that's what begins to happen in 2005 and 2006. Uh, the context here is that, you know, a lot of the, uh, of the Bush policy in the war on terror was developed in secret, you know, most famously the torture programs and the warrantless wiretapping programs and the sort of development of the case for waging war in Iraq is sort of developed in secret and then selectively declassified key pieces of that intelligence to make the case look stronger than it actually was. And so a lot of policy has been done in secret and much has been placed on the importance of secrecy. And, you know, I think Cheney is an important figure here, you know, Bush's vice president, who had been kind of advocating for a strong uh, president with the ability to act in secret since the 1970s. And the the Bush, the second Bush administration is really the kind of culmination of his sort of lifelong vision of what the presidency should be. And as information about what the US has done in the war on terror begins to leak out, it's, it begins to produce a legitimacy crisis for the Bush administration. And they then begin to kind of turn on, uh, on leakers and to use the Espionage Act more, more than ever before. Uh, to investigate leaks. And that program is picked up by the Obama administration and continued. And so what you'll get in the war on terror are a series of basically whistleblowers, people inside the security state who say the American public doesn't really understand what's being done in its name because the whole conduct of American foreign policy is far too secretive. And we believe that they have a right to know what's happening. Um, And so this is Thomas Drake, who, you know, argue who uh, releases well he doesn't actually release information but is charged with releasing information but had been involved in advocating for greater um basic basically greater budgetary transparency in national security agency activity but then followed by drake is uh, thomas uh, is edward snowden who releases in more detail the warrantless wiretapping programs uh 
to The Guardian uh, and other newspapers. You have Chelsea Manning releasing information to WikiLeaks, famously. Uh, you have Tom, uh, you have Terry Albury releasing information about religious and racial profiling occurring in the FBI. Uh, and you have a sequence of other people who release information relating to the national security to the press in order to bring attention to policies that are happening that they believe there should be more democratic debate about. Uh, and they are all met with Espionage Act charges, and the Espionage Act uh, turns out to be very difficult to mount a case against because it doesn't provide, actually, uh, any excuses for this activity. It makes it illegal to take information relating to the national defense and communicate it to those not authorized to receive it. And that's what whistleblowers are doing. You know, So one of the things that reformers call for is something like a public interest defense where you would be able to say, well, yes, I did disclose this information without authorization, but I did so because I thought the public had a right to know, right? And then ask for judges or juries to adjudicate whether that was a legitimate public interest. Uh, but that doesn't exist. The, the Espionage Act is really strict liability on these questions. And so what you see when an administration is really willing to use the law to prosecute leakers, that it has real power and you get a sort of radical uptick in uh, prosecutions during the war on terror. So would that be the place to start with reform, um, adding, for example, as you said, a public interest idea to it? Or are there other places to start? And I suppose even if we identify good places to start, there's, of course, the question of the likelihood of reform happening. So what, what do you think might the future of this be? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think, and the book makes a case that reform is is necessary and urgent. Uh, you know that this the current this, the deformations of American politics produced by the runaway secrecy regime in the United States are producing real harms, uh, both in terms of foreign policy, but also just in terms of the basic quality of American democratic culture. And I think, you know, a lot of the conspiracy theories of the second half of the 20th century have been conspiracies sort of centered on the actual sites of government secrecy. You can think about sort of the moon landing uh, or, you know, UFOs, uh, you know, at, at Area 51 where the CIA sort of test flies planes up to the QAnon conspiracy theory, right? So named for the level of Q's of security clearance. And so, you know, in the context of a real kind of crisis of democracy and a real crisis of American faith in their government, and also real foreign policy crises that have come out of sort of decades of adventurism, uh, I think that there's a need for real reform to the secrecy regime and a need for root and branch reform. Uh, so one part of that would involve reforming the Espionage Act itself, which hasn't been revised since 1950 and has, hasn't been meaningfully revised ever. Uh, and, you know, the first people calling for reform to the Espionage Act, saying that it's a little out of date, should, probably should be updated, really uh, come in the interwar years. In the 1930s, people say, well, why, why isn't Congress doing something about this? And so I think that's important. From my point of view, a public interest defense is a key addition. I think also is it should be made very clear that the Espionage Act does not apply to newspapers. At the moment, it's unclear whether or not a newspaper could be found guilty of violating the Espionage Act if they published information relating to the national defense without authorization. And, you know, in theory, uh, the letter of the law makes it look like that would be illegal. Although if it was illegal, it's hard to see how it would be compatible with the First Amendment and might be unconstitutional, or at least you would hope it would be unconstitutional. But that's never really been tested. 
And so you have this kind of weird limbo where newspapers are publishing secret information, leaked information all of the time that are never prosecuted, but potentially could be if, if an administration uh, with sufficient animus toward the press were to come into power and a leak was to be published that they really didn't want. So that's kind of worrying. And I think those parts of the espionage law need to be re- revised to make it more compatible with a democracy. But then the second area for reform, I think, is a need to make the classification system much more rational uh, and to, to provide some checks and balances to prevent routine overclassification and to make sure that really only a small subset of genuinely secret information is kept secret and that there's much more transparency uh, more broadly. Now, how likely are those two pieces of reform? I mean, I think there have been proposals for various parts of them at various points. They've failed so far to establish a serious kind of coalition uh, behind them. Uh, But my hope is that there might be a window opportunity at present. Uh, In part, you know, we can see in some of the debates currently happening about reauthorizing uh, Section 702 and the, the surveillance programs, that there is a kind of coalition potentially emerging between the kind of uh, civil libertarian progressive left and uh, the libertarian conservative movement. And some of the sort of new right have their skepticism about the security state as well, uh, you know, in no small part because there are martyrs of the Espionage Act on both the left and the right, you know, you know Chelsea Manning uh, and Edward Snowden on the one hand, but, you know, Donald Trump himself has been charged with the Espionage Act as one of the many different charges he faces at the moment. So I could imagine that there is a moment in American politics at at present that might be a little unique uh, in which you could imagine a more serious reckoning with the damage that the secrecy regime has caused. And because of that, perhaps a kind of more bipartisan coalition interested in more systemic and structural reform. Uh, Now, there are a lot of people who are worried about that. Um, You know, a lot of media organizations I know have learned to make their peace with the espionage law and are worried that any reform might end up being even more draconian. Uh, But from my point of view, I think that really understates how damaging the Espionage Act currently is to American democratic debate, to the quality of a democratic life in America, and to the quality of national security policy. Uh, And so I would hope that there's a moment coming in which a more serious reform could be discussed. Well, we shall certainly see, and that's a very helpful answer for giving us specifics to look for. Um, But now that you've very helpfully kind of, we've we've come to the end of the content in the book, I'm wondering if I can ask you a question or two about your process of writing it, Um, now that we have a sense of what you cover. The point you mentioned right at the beginning of kind of getting this email in March 2020 obviously suggests some challenges in terms of putting this book together. But even without that, writing a book about secrecy, writing a book about an espionage act that is so incredibly blunt, that does, we know, has documented um, result in overclassification, what have some of the biggest challenges been in researching this book and how did you deal with them? Yeah, so, you know, the, the writing a history of secrecy is actually not as difficult as it sounds like it might be because I'm not in this book, really trying to uncover, you know, the secrets or what was really going on. I mean, that would be a difficult 
task. I mean, that's something that, say, uh, Matthew Connolly has tried to do in his book on the secrecy problem, uh, the, classific- the declassification engine, which you know tries to use sort of machine learning algorithms to unearth what were some of the things that were being classified. What I'm focused on in this book is the legal architecture of the secrecy regime and trying to work out what role that's played in democratic life. And that is public facing. Uh, you know, you can sort of see how the laws are being applied and you can see the impact and you can trace the particular cases that have been brought. Now, there's things that I don't know, obviously. Um, you know, that's part of the problem with secrecy. Uh, but in general, I think you can see enough in the congressional record. You can see enough in the cases that have been brought. You can see enough in the kind of long history of the leaks And then you can see enough, thanks to really the diligent work of a lot of historians and journalists using things like FOIA very creatively and very doggedly over the years to bring information to light that allows you to understand the dynamics behind the regime. And that's what this book is a study of. So there are a couple of moments where I had new kind of findings. You know, there's a World War II uh, espionage case against a guy called Edmund Carl Hine, who basically collects publicly available information on American, uh, the American aeroplane industry and provides that back to the Nazis. And he goes to jail for espionage. And he says, that can't be espionage because it wasn't secret. I just took stuff from newspapers and air shows and so forth. And that's a case that's famous and that I knew a little bit about, but I was able to FOIA one of his FBI files and learn a little bit more about him and the case, for instance. Uh, but that is was really helpful to me primarily for adding color and character to the stories. Um, You know, most of the facts about how the the regime have evolved were, were available. Well, that's good. And that's, that's encouraging to hear um, as a historian that that, that was easier than perhaps we might've expected. Um, Nevertheless, as my penultimate question, I'd love to ask if there's anything you came across, even if it is something small uh, in the research or writing of this that you found particularly surprising? Yeah, so this is one of those questions that I always struggle with on these interviews because I it's so hard for me to put myself back in the moment of when I was first finding these things. That, you know, you sort of mm, rework mm-hmm. and rework a chapter so much you forget what was originally surprising to you. Uh, I think the two that really stuck with me were, you know, that the sort of the panic about Japanese spies and the character of Richmond Hobson and the kind of moral panic that helped usher in the first espionage laws and how related that was to similar spy fears in other, in other imperial countries uh, at, at the time. You know, that was something that I shouldn't perhaps have been as surprised about, but I didn't know it and I didn't know those characters. Uh, and it's really made me kind of very sceptical of, you know, ongoing spy panics. You know, there's a mm-hmm. kind of realizing with hindsight, well, what were people really worried about? And every time there's a spy scare, this is not to deny that there are spies and that, you know, you, a democracy doesn't want its secrets being sold willy-nilly to a foreign power. Mm-hmm. But the moral panic have always creates a kind of a surplus value, right, that makes the spies seem much scarier. And so that was a sort of surprising moment and I think an instructive moment for me to bear in mind. Uh, And the second was, you know, I didn't realize just how late in the day conservatives who wanted a robust secrecy regime remained dissatisfied with the Espionage Act. 
because mm-hmm. I'd studied its early years and I could see the problems with it. And I had then sort of drawn a straight line from there to the use of the Espionage Act during the War on Terror, which is where I really first began thinking about it, it was during the kind of prosecutions of, uh, you know, of Manning and, and, and the threats against Snowden and so forth. And so it was a surprise to me to realize that as late as 2000, conservatives thought that the Espionage Act wasn't good enough. Uh, and to realize something about the rhythm of these laws that, you know, they linger, you know, they don't kind of grow in a, in a steady kind of metronomic fashion, but they sort of hang around, hang around, and then they wait for someone to kind of come in with sufficient will and just really sort of test them and see how far they can be pushed. And so that, I think, was both a, a surprising revelation just in terms of, you know, what was going on with the law and how dissatisfied people with it were, but also a kind of reminder to me to think about not just the law as it exists on the books and not just the law as it exists in the jurisprudence, but how a kind of general sense of what is possible in a political moment really shapes the the reach and stretch of a law. Mm. Uh, and that, again, was surprising, but then I think instructive in thinking about uh, history more broadly. For someone who has trouble answering that question, those were some very good surprises. So thank you for sharing them with us. Leaving me with really only my final question. Um, the book obviously has pretty recently come out, so it might be a bit early to ask this. But is there anything you've got your eye on to work on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic that you'd like to highlight? Sure. So I'm I'm sort of kicking, kicking the tires on a few different book projects, but not rushing into any of them just at the moment. Um, but the one thing I am working on is I'm a visiting fellow this year at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, which is a really interesting organization that does research and litigation around First Amendment issues. And they've done a lot of important work around the secrecy regime. Um, and one of the things I'm working with them there is where, uh, in a little bit of a new departure from me, but growing out of this work, uh, we're organizing a conference uh, on the, the basically the politics and the law of uh, public employee speech. And so how we should think about regulating uh, the speech of public employees, which is obviously very controversial at the moment for a variety of reasons, including, you know, the attack on academic freedom in public universities, but also related to the efforts, uh, sort of some interesting cases about whether or not it's constitutional uh, for to regulate unionization among public uh, employees, uh, and also a host of kind of interesting questions about whistleblowing law, and um, also ideological and loyalty tests, and sort of the use of public uh, facing social media by public employees and bureaucrats. And so I'm going to take very little credit for the work that comes out of that, because we've got a great group of people coming together to write papers. Uh, But thinking about bureaucracy and democracy and the rights of free speech within the public sector. Uh, is kind of the main game for me at the moment. Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, Best of luck to you and the whole team in putting that together. I think there'll be lots of things coming out of it that'll be interesting and helpful. And of course, in the meantime, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled State of Silence, The Espionage Act and the Rise of America's Secrecy Regime, published in 2023 by Basic Books. Sam, thank you so much for joining us once again on the New Books Network. Thank you. This was a lot of fun.